buddies' names who are uh, uh, regularly attending on Tuesday night and Thursday night to make sure we get everybody when there's a situation like last Thursday night. Um, Franklin was just telling me he got got here, nobody was here, thought the rapture had occurred, and he got left behind. Yeah, and if you're if you're new, you need to make sure Sandy has your information. And we've got the sign-up sheets out there. We just need to get those updated pretty quickly with this uh, <clears throat> set of storms setting up, afternoon storms like they've been. But anyway, that's another issue. We have our memorial service for Jim Burney. It's going to be this uh, Saturday morning. Please be in prayer for that, uh, 10.30 in the morning. Afterwards, there will be a brunch reception uh, following the uh, following the service. And you can, you can be in prayer because I know that there will be possibly, probably some family members who are not believers, and there will also be uh, some other friends who are here that are not believers. So we want to make sure, of course, as always, that the gospel is clear, but we need to be in prayer for that. Also, um, that's at 10.30. No men's prayer breakfast this month. Deacon's meeting will be at 8.30 Saturday morning. Now, the only other announcement is that uh, Jeff just let us know that there, uh, that at this time of the year, in reference to uh, Camparete, in the past we've made similar announcements that they're a little short on funds. They like to end up the year at this time right before camp with enough money to cover all their expenses plus a little bit extra for seed money for operational expenses during the coming year. So they're running uh, about or approximately 7,000 and change short. So we need to be in prayer for that and just to let that need be known. <clears throat> I think that's it for, for announcements, right? Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give each one the opportunity to make sure you are in fellowship and ready to study the word this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we're so thankful we can be here to study your word, to be have our confidence in your word reinforced, to understand your plan for the ages, to be reminded of your grace that runs through every dispensation, and that uh, we, like all human beings, are desperately in need of your grace, your provision, and you are the one who sustains us. You are the one who has given us a perfect salvation. And, Father, we pray that we might come to understand 
the dynamics of that even more fully tonight as we study. Father, we pray for those in this congregation who are facing uh, challenges. Uh, There are some that are facing some serious tests related to health or finances, others related to loss. And, Father, we just pray that you would comfort them and strengthen them uh, during this time. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to stay there, and that's sort of our anchor chapter as we go through this important issue of understanding this question of how the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament. And that may seem like a rather um, uh, abstract concept for some of you, I remember the first time I think I ever heard anybody talk about it, address it in any way, shape, or form was when I was in seminary, and it sort of flew past my head in terms of its significance because it's a subtle issue, but it's one that has tremendous ramifications. Now, what we're doing, just to put this within the scope of this, this series on God's plan for the ages, we've covered the Old Testament uh, ages, the age of the Gentiles, the age of Israel. We've covered the dispensations that are within each of those ages, and we have come up through the dispensation of the Messiah, the life of Christ, ending at the cross. Now, there's a short transition period before the next dispensation begins, which is the current dispensation, the church age. The church age begins in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, the phenomena of God the Holy Spirit descending upon the church takes place, and the disciples begin to speak in languages that they never learned. They're physical manifestations of what appears to be flames of fire over each of their heads, and they begin to speak to those who are in the temple about the mighty works of God. Because they are Galileans, they are assumed to be ignorant uh, from the backwoods, something like we might ascribe to someone from uh, uh, Pasadena or East Texas or Arkansas. Every place has some place like that, West Virginia. When I was in Connecticut, I heard somebody say that when you cross the border into Maine, your IQ dropped 50 points. Now, these things are not true, but they're just these kind of regional myths that people believe, and they had them at New Testament times as well, and they just figured that if you were from Galilee because you had sort of a backwoods accent, apparently, or whatever it was, you weren't very bright. So how could these unlearned Galileans, these fishermen, speak so well, so accurately in language they had never heard? So they asked the question, and Peter answers and his answer is really opens up this whole issue because when Peter answers in Acts 2.16, he says, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. So at a surface reading of the text, it seems as if what, Joel, what, what, what Peter is saying is this is the fulfillment of what Joel says, and he quotes from Joel 2.28-32, which is a prophecy 
related to the great and awesome day of the Lord, which comes at the end of the tribulation. And he talks about these things that will come about as a result of God pouring forth his spirit upon Israel. And we understand from what we studied in the New Covenant that that's the part of the fulfillment and the, uh, inaugura- the true inauguration of the, of the um, New Covenant. What Peter describes in Acts 2 is not mentioned. I mean, what actually happens in Acts 2 is not mentioned at all in Joel 2. What does happen in Acts 2 is the speaking of tongues, nowhere mentioned in Joel 2. What happens, what is predicted actually literally in Joel 2 doesn't take place at all in Acts 2. So in what sense is this a fulfillment? Now, the reason this is important is because within evangelicalism, there are these different views on how you understand this fulfillment type of terminology when the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament. And if you treat them all the same, then you end up with some pretty squirrely ideas and theology. And there are those who will take this as a, this is a partial fulfillment. So this is one issue that comes up in hermeneutics. Is there such a thing as partial fulfillment? Or is a partial fulfillment actually no fulfillment? Because fulfillment means fulfilled completely. And that's where I would end up. This isn't a partial fulfillment. There are no partial fulfillments because it's not a fulfillment at all. It is not. Nothing that happens in Joel 2 happens in Acts 2, so how could it be a partial fulfillment? There's only one thing that the two events have in common, and that is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But it's a different, I would argue it's a different kind of outpouring on the day of Pentecost than what will come with the, um, with the new covenant, which we studied to, to a small degree when I studied that. So this is why this is important. It also will help lay the foundation for something we will study a little later on, when we talk about this recent development within dispensational thought that has been called progressive dispensationalism. And in progressive dispensationalism, they've adopted a new system of interpretation, a new hermeneutic, which they call a complementary hermeneutic. Now, we believe uh, that the way to understand the Bible is on the basis of a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of the Scripture. Literal, we, we take the word used in their normal, everyday sense. doesn't mean that we deny figures of speech or idioms, but in terms of the everyday meaning and use of language, we take it at face value. So it's grammatical. We believe it's important to exegete the passages, understand the grammar and the syntax, because that opens up to us the meaning of what is said in these particular statements. It's, it's historical because it has a historical background, and we believe there's a context, historical, cultural context, to all of the passages in the Bible, and we must understand that. We must understand uh, the background of, uh, of Greek culture when we're talking about the epistles to Ephesus or Corinth or Thessalonica, we need to understand that. We need to understand aspects of Persian culture when we're studying uh, Nehemiah or studying Esther or studying Daniel. We need to understand uh, ancient Near Eastern culture when we're reading through the Pentateuch and other things. So that's that's a historical, grammatical, uh, literal interpretation of Scripture. But in complementary hermeneutics, they add a fourth category, 
theological. It's historical, grammatical, literal, theological. What that means is that later theology then assigns new meanings to Old Testament texts. Now, this is where this gets a little bit abstract, and it takes all of us, myself included, a little while to grasp this, that when David or Samuel or Isaiah wrote in the Old Testament, there was a single meaning assigned to that text. He meant one and only one thing. And you, you know that intuitively whenever you read something that you don't quite understand, you're asking, what did they mean by that? What did he mean by that? What did she mean by that? You understand that, that the meaning is determined by the author's intent, what was in the author's mind, not what you want it to say. And that they had one thing in mind that they were communicating. And this concept of the single meaning of the text is very important. What happens in some of these other theological systems is they start talking about double references that, that, that are double fulfillments. Now, that's Arnold Fruchtenbaum uses the term dual fulfillment when he talks about Isaiah 7:14, and that's because two or three of those verses are are prophecies related to the to Ahab personally. But the passage in Isaiah 14 is addressed, there's a shift in the plural pronoun, and it's addressed to the house of David. So it's a prophecy that has a long-term target, uh, which is the birth of Christ. So there's a, he said, uses that term dual fulfillment. And what he means by that is there's really two prophecies there. One is fulfilled early, one's fulfilled later. But in this language that's been developed recently in hermeneutics, you have this term dual fulfillment, and what that means is it's partially fulfilled at the time of Isaiah, for example, that it's Isaiah's son partially fulfills that prophecy, but its ultimate fulfillment is the birth of Christ. This has a lot of implications for the whole study of meaning and assigning meaning to the text, where this really impacts most of us, is that it, it, it is a form of the argument that the text has a living aspect to it. You hear it when you hear people talk about the Constitution as a living document. The interpretation of it can change from generation to generation. And so uh, this is a dimension of that kind of a problem applied applied to the Bible. So this is why I'm taking some time to to drill down on this more than I ever have before because it it needs to be clearly articulated and understand understood within the context of why it's important to dispensational studies and why it shows and we'll get there eventually to why progressive dispensationalism isn't progressive, it isn't dispensational. In fact, uh, one uh, theologian, Walter Elwell, uh, commented in an article he wrote in Christianity Today that it is has more in common with, with covenant theology than it does with dispensationalism. That's a rough paraphrase of his comment. So we're looking at this, and I talked about it a little bit last time, and I said there are four basic ways in which this is used, and this is based on a rabbinical, a rabbinical concept that <clears throat> a rabbinical interpretation that was called uh, pardes, which is a p, an r, a d, and an s. The Hebrew's a consonantal language, so they stood for four different Hebrew letters, uh, each related to 
uh, these different styles of interpretation. And I covered those last time. The first was Peshat for direct fulfillment. This is the one we're most used to. When you see the scripture says, this fulfilled that, you think in terms of this category only, probably most of you, unless you've been really paying attention to me over the years. But there's three other ways that terminology is used. All of these are there are examples of each of these in Matthew. And Dr. David L. Cooper, who was the founder of the Biblical Research Society and had a strong background in Jewish studies, broke down the Pardes system and he re- gave new names. The um, Peshat, the simple meaning of the text, he called t- direct fulfillment. The second letter, the Resh, refers to remes, which means a hint. He called that typical fulfillment. We got into that last time. The third category is applicational fulfillment. This is the Dalit in Pardes, uh, the Dalit for drash, meaning an exposition or application. The drash is like the last part of Midrash or Midrash. And then you have summary fulfillment. We'll hopefully move through the third and fourth uh, tonight, but I want to review last time. I, I got a couple of really good responses last time. People came up and said, boy, my brain's turned inside out. So that tells me you need to hear it again just to understand it. I've taught this. Everybody here, with maybe two or three exceptions, has heard me teach this at least three times. So repetition is good for you to understand it and get this down. Because when you read your Bible, you need to look at, you see these quotes from the Old Testament, you need to be saying, well, what does he mean? And which of these four categories being used? First time I ran into this was in back in the 80s. Uh, first time I was introduced to Arnold Fruchtenbaum, Tommy Ice and I were working through something related to Old Testament, an Old Testament passage. I actually think it was related to Joel 2 and dispensationalism, and we were um, we were working through this at that particular time. As I pointed out last time, the first category is literal prophecy, literal fulfillment. In Matthew 2, 5 and 6, the scribes and Pharisees are asked uh, by Herod, well, where, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? And they quoted from uh, Ma- uh, Malachi uh, 5, 2, that it would be in Bethlehem. So Malachi, I mean, excuse me, Micah 5, 2, is a prophecy. It's a literal prophecy speaking about a future event that Bethlehem would be the place where one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. So it's focusing on this future king, the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Okay, so it's clearly a literal prophecy being literally fulfilled in um, at, at, at the birth of Christ. Another example I mentioned a minute ago, Isaiah 7, 14. Uh, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is uh, quoted in Matthew 1, 23 as, as fulfillment. Now one thing you might not have, you, most of you, some of you know this now, but last week we had an Orthodox Jew in the congregation. So, in, and he's very, very knowledgeable and very much aware of issues, and he's been witness to a lot by a number of Christians. And so there was an added dimension. I mean, he he had been at this church once before back in November. Just so happened I just started Matthew, and we were in Matthew 2. You think that's a coincidence? 
And he sat in class. He was brought here by a friend of his. And he sat in class with his friend's New King James Bible in one hand. He thought that was a better translation than his English translation of the Tanakh. And his Hebrew text, on the other hand, now all I saw that whole day, that whole Sunday morning, was the top of his head because he was going back and forth and he had some good questions for me afterwards. So I believe with people like that, God is certainly working on them. But there are also people in our congregation who, especially here, we've got some really sharp people here in this congregation. We've got some who are listening online, and I got a really good question from one lady up in New York. And I put it on the screen because I want to show the answer, and I want to talk about this a little bit to help you understand why this is important. It's not just doing this for some sort of academic reason. It really impacts how we understand Scripture. And this is maybe a little bit above some of y'all's heads. I understand that. It's a little bit above my head. I've had to go through this many times. First time I heard some of what I'm getting ready to tell you, which was only about 13 or 14 years ago, I, I had to go back again and again and again and read it to really get my fingers around it. But I'm hoping I can explain it a little more, rele- a little more significantly uh, tonight. So here's her question. She said, perhaps you can clarify for me the use of a single hermeneutic. What she's saying is last time I taught about the single meaning of the text. So clarify that. Let's look at a few examples from the Psalms comparing the original context to how the New Testament writer uses it. And she quotes from, uh, really asks in relation to three, um, three texts. She did ask about, what happened? Did I wait a minute? Let me. I just want to check something. I did. Okay. I didn't size it right. Cut off the bottom paragraph. Okay. She she asks about Psalm forty seven, forty verse seven, which says, "Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me." That is quoted in Hebrews one. Is this David talking about himself here? And then the writer of Hebrews ascribes it to Jesus. Then she asked about Psalm 41.9, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trust, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. A prophecy related to uh, Judas Iscariot's betrayal of Jesus. Then she commented, We all know that hardly a Davidic psalm was written without reference to one enemy or another. Under the principle of a single hermeneutic or a single meaning of the text, that's what she's asking, does this mean that in real time for David, this was one of his foes, but then Peter picks it up to refer to the Lord's enemy in Acts 1? Actually, the Acts 1 quote, when Peter is calling everybody together, we need to replace Judas, he quotes from Psalm 69.25 and Psalm 109.8. And that's really the third category. I went through this in Acts 1. I went through all four of these uses in Acts 1 because there were many times in the book of Acts that we had these quotes from the Old Testament and had to decide which category they were in. So that would be the third category application, which we'll get to tonight. In fact, probably each of these is application as opposed to direct prophecy. Now, that sometimes the borderline gets a little iffy because I know some people, for example, you have Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says Psalm 22 is a prophecy. Michael Rydelnik who's taken everything Arnold has done and developed it much more, uh, much more academically 
and much more precisely says, no, it's not. <laughs> it's application. So yeah, there's a little bit of a disagreement there because some of these are a little harder to define. But I'm using Psalm 22 because I want to educate you on this issue uh, and so that you've at least you've heard it, and this will help you in terms of some references later on. Now, there's a disagreement, but the, to me, the three most widely known and read writers from our dispensational camp on hermeneutics are first and foremost, the man I think has it nailed better than anybody else, is Dr. Robert Thomas. Uh, now he is uh, retired from teaching at the Master Seminary. And uh, Michael Cha, who Mike and Youngen have been part of the congregation now for a couple of months, Mike did his Master's of Theology out there at the Master Seminary and was privileged to take a lot of courses from Bob Thomas. And in a lot of those courses, there weren't very many other students, or he was the only one, and he really got a great opportunity to, to pick his brain. So there's Bob Thomas, and then there is uh, our two, two guys from Dallas, Elliot Johnson, who was here at uh, and spoke at the Chafer Conference this last March. And Elliot has taught the... Uh, basic hermeneutics class at Dallas Seminary and the advanced hermeneutics course for the last 40-plus years at Dallas Seminary. And he's highly respected. He's written a textbook on uh, hermeneutics. And then Roy Zuck, who went to be with the Lord a little over a year ago, uh, Roy Zuck's well-known because he edited anything that was published at Dallas Seminary. And uh, Roy wrote a book called Basic Bible Interpretation, which I recommended to those, uh, and some of you were here, who came to the Bible Study Methods class, and that's an excellent, excellent resource. But they don't agree. And what I'm going to show you and I put up on the screen is this quote from Bob Thomas's book where uh, Dr. Thomas is critiquing these other two guys from Dallas. I think Thomas is right. Thomas is really firm. He is so consistent on emphasizing the principle of the single meaning of the text. That means that when David wrote Psalm 22, he was writing about something in his own experience and was not conscious of writing something that was, he was not writing prophecy, but he's writing using a lot of uh, hyperbole and idiomatic language that under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit as gu- was guided so that there was a fuller sense. That's that word I used last time, census plenure, a fuller sense that under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when the writers of the New Testament came along, they quoted from that. But the meaning of the text, if you were sitting down in 900 B.C. and you were teaching Psalm 22, you wouldn't talk about the Messiah at all because that's not evident from reading the text. It had one meaning, the meaning the author intended. God the Holy Spirit comes along under inspiration and applies that to Jesus. That's what we mean by application. This is what um, what Bob Thomas says. Critiquing Roy Zuck, Zuck chooses the principle of single meaning, so, he, you know, both, all three of these guys argue for single meaning, but they have some differences. He says, Zuck chooses the principle of single meaning, but treads on dangerous ground when, in following Elliot Johnson, he adds related implications or related sub-meanings 
To speak of a single meaning on one hand and of related sub-meanings on the other is contradictory. A passage either has one meaning or it has more than one meaning. No middle ground exists between those two options. This is Bob Thomas in an article he wrote that became part of his book on evangelical hermeneutics. He says, Zuck uses Psalm 78.2 to illustrate related implications or related sub-meanings. The psalmist Asaph writes, I will open my mouth in a parable. Zuck limits the passage to one meaning, but says the passage has two reference, Jesus and Asaph. And Jesus applies the words to himself in Matthew 13.35. Instead of saying the psalm has... Instead of saying the psalm has two reference, which in essence assigns two meanings to it. See, that violates the single meaning of the text. As soon as you say it has two reference, as, long, as soon as you say Psalm 22 applied to David and to Jesus, you've given it two meanings. That violates the single meaning principle of hermeneutics. Instead of saying the psalm has two reference, which in essence assigns two meanings to it, to say the psalm's lone referent is Asaph, thereby limiting the psalm to one meaning, is preferable. Either Psalm 78.2 refers to Asaph or it refers to Jesus. It cannot refer to both. It is proper to say that Psalm 78.2 refers to Asaph and Matthew 13.35 refers to Jesus. By itself, Psalm 78.2 cannot carry the weight of the latter referent. In other words, what he's saying is Jesus is applying it to himself. But Asaph wasn't talking about Jesus in the original context. In defending his double referent view, this is Bob Thomas still, Zuck apparently makes this, this same distinction, though he does not repudiate the double referent terminology. This is where it seems like, well, these guys are just arguing semantics. Uh, it's taken a long time for me to sit down with Roy, with Elliot, and with Bob Thomas over a period of several years to really understand what they're saying. He goes on to say, Zuck discusses Psalms 8, 16, and 22, noting that David wrote them about his own experiences. So all three of these guys are going to say this same thing. Psalm 22, David wrote about David's experiences. They're then applied by the Holy Spirit to Jesus noting that David wrote them about his own experience, but that the New Testament applies them to Christ in a sense significantly different from how David used them. His conclusions about these psalms and the New Testament use of them is accurate, but the psalms themselves cannot have more than one referent, hermeneutically speaking. Such would assign them more than one meaning. Now, let me tell you, when you start saying it's a double referent or double meaning, you may not understand it. It may go over your head right now, but that opens the door to the road to perdition in terms of understanding what the Bible is saying. And it has horrible implications, one of which is this nonsense, in my opinion, called progressive dispensationalism. Okay. Then uh, Thomas goes on to say, uh, neither the human author David nor the original readers of the Psalms could have used the principles of grammar and the facts of history to come up with the additional referent or meaning that the New Testament assigns to the Psalms. The source and authority for that additional meaning is the New Testament, not the Old Testament. In those examples where, where it's application, not in the first example, which are clear messianic prophecies, because Thomas isn't denying the reality of messianic prophecies. That's a, that's a whole other issue. So last time, 
I want to review this, make sure we got this. I, I talked about the second example, which is literal plus typical. This is the view that, uh, that uh, the rabbis called uh, remez, for which means hint. And so this opens up that, that particular, uh, particular meaning. And Matthew 2.15, that's why I said turn to Matthew 2.15, Matthew 2.15, we see and, and, um, that, that Jesus was and the family were in uh, Egypt until the death of Herod, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Now, this is a different sense of fulfillment. Fulfillment, that word has a broad range of meanings. And if we assign the same sense every time we see it, we're going to get in trouble. Uh, that through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. Quoting Hosea 11.1, uh, Hosea 11.1, God says, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, this is a reference back to Exodus chapter 4, when God adopts Israel as his son. That's important terminology, because it begins to set the stage that Israel is going to be defined by God as a type or a picture of the Messiah. And that's what Hosea is doing, when, uh, or that's what Matthew is doing. When Matthew is, quotes Hosea 11.1, 1, some people say, well, he just picked that because that's a passage that talks about uh, Israel coming out of Egypt, and he could relate that to Jesus. No, he's not writing about geography and, and Matthew uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. He's really emphasizing the significance of Jesus as the Messiah and that this has, that, that quote has messianic implications in terms of that phrase coming out of Egypt. It's not something that's just random. It's something that God the Holy Spirit built into the meaning of that text through inspiration through Hosea. It's not something that a, that that was intended as a prophecy, because when you look at Hosea eleven one, Hosea is simply writing about the historical event of the Jews coming out of Egypt, and Israel was called by God, my son. Now the the Septuagint translated that my children, and the, and and. Uh, Matthew doesn't quote from the Septuagint. These other references he quotes from the Septuagint because they were still true. But he doesn't quote from the Septuagint here. He quotes from the Masoretic text because the, what he wants to emphasize is the phrase, my son. That is sig- theologically significant because Jesus is God's son. And so what I did next was I went to a passage of Scripture that we really don't spend a lot of time on, which is the Balaam oracles in Numbers chapters 22 through 24. Balaam uh, was this prophet who gets hired. He's truly a prophet of God, but he is he is uh, sort of uh, 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 prostituting his gift to the highest bidder. And God forbids him from cursing Israel, but Balak, the um, king of the Moabites, wants him to curse Israel so that they're not a problem. And so God instead gives him these oracles, 
where he is going to predict certain things related to Israel. And so I read those, and I put this slide up on the board, which sort of runs together, and I redid the slide so that you would see the two columns here. On the left, you have the, the second oracle. On the right, you have the third oracle, and I color-coded it. Uh, on the right side, the, the oracle is talking about Israel as a nation. And it treats in the, pro, uh, the pronouns that are used are pronouns that relate to the corporate entity of, of the whole nation. God brings them out of Egypt. That first third-person plural pronoun is replaced by a second-person singular pronoun, but it's clear that it's always referring to that corporate entity of Israel. The right-hand column, the third oracle, that is uh, related to the messianic king, talks about uh, his king shall be higher than Gog, his kingdom shall be exalted. Uh, it talks about the fact that he destroys his nations and enemies, and all of this is related to an individual. So the left side talks about uh, Israel, the right side talks about the Messiah King. Now, why is this important? Because what, what God did in the revelation of this information to Moses is God defined Israel as a type of the Messiah. That isn't something that a theologian or a Bible scholar came along and did. That is what God did. God uses Israel in verse, in chapter 23 as a type or a picture or an analogy for the Messiah, the individual, the Messianic King in the third oracle. And the color code brings it out. He says, God brought them out of Egypt when talking about Israel, but when talking about the King, he says, God brings him out of Egypt. That's really our key phrase. That's what, what Matthew is going back to, is that there's this messianic prophecy that the Messiah King is going to come out of Egypt, not just the typology of Israel coming out, but that God specifically predicted that the Messiah King himself would come out, and this would be typified by Israel coming out. He says that the, the, the nation is compared to the strength of a wild ox, and this is a type of the king who is uh, who has the strength like a wild ox. The nation uh, is said to rise like a lioness and be compared to a lion, and that is a type of the Messiah king who bows down as a lion. And so this is not just happenstance. This ought to increase our confidence in the whole concept of inspiration that this isn't just something that, that these guys made up and wrote, wrote down, but there, there's a lot of intricate con- and subtle connections from the Hebrew text, from these various uh, passages that were revealed over a period of time in the Old Testament that are then brought together uh, in the person of Christ over a period of 2,000 years. At the conclusion of... of, of um, yeah, Matthew 23, 21, it says that the Lord is God is with him and the shout of a king is among, and it says them in the King James and most English translations, but the biblical uh, Hebraica Stukartensia, the Hebrew Bible, has a third person singular with him, which is 
it, which is important because it's, it uses that second person singular pronoun to emphasize the, the whole of Israel. That also played a role. I'm writing a paper right now on Romans 10, 9, and 10. It's going to come out in a book on difficult passages for free grace gospel. And that really plays an important role. God deals with Israel corporately. We covered that when I covered Romans 9, 10, and 11. And, uh, and God deals with them that way. We always want to think in terms of individuals, but that's not how, how God deals with it. Okay. So there's some, uh, that's the point of that, of that section. Okay. Now, I want to move on to some other passages. Anybody have any questions on that? Anybody know, know enough to ask a question? Anybody not know enough to ask a question? Just sounds good. Okay, this is stuff, like I said, it takes a little while to sit on this, but it's, it's important for just how you learn to read your Bible. Okay, in, in, um, in this next section, in this next section, I'm going to look at another example of this same kind of, uh, usage of a, it's, it's a typical, uh, typical use of the passage. It's not, uh, the the original context isn't talking about um, isn't talking about something prophetic. It's not a prophecy in the original context, but it is used by the writer in the in the uh, New Testament in order to emphasize something uh, that is depicted from this Old Testament event in the life of the of the Messiah. So in Matthew fifteen seven to nine we read hypocrites. Jesus is speaking. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. See, that's a quote from Isaiah 29, 13, which I have at the bottom of the slide, and in the original context. Now, in the original context of Isaiah 29, 13, Isaiah is speaking of a historical event when the people of Israel at the time of Isaiah were rejecting his message and his warning that they would come under divine judgment for their disobedience. Israel's rejection of the prophetic word of the prophet at that time is a type or an analogy of the of Israel's rejection of the prophetic word of the Messiah. So it's a type. Israel as a whole, in terms of their negative volition, becomes a type of Israel at the time of Christ and that negative volition. Another example. See, not all of these have to be as intricate as the first one. In John twelve thirty nine and 40, we read, Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. Uh, Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. God has given them plenty of time to exercise their volition. They've exercised it negatively, and now he is shutting it down and hardening their heart because they have rejected him. That's, that's the, uh, that's the uh, theological uh, nuance there. In Isaiah 16, the context is talking about a prophetic message of Isaiah the prophet that it would be re- his message would be rejected by his own people. And that's the historical situation. It's not 
making a prophecy in Isaiah 6.10, but it is a type or an analog of the situation with, the, with Israel at the time of Christ. Another quick example, Matthew 21.42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That is taken from Psalm 118, 22 and 23, which states, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now, the, pass- the, the Psalm 118, 22 to 23 passage is simply making a point from an analogy that the builders rejected or set aside a stone because they did not know what to do with it. Later, when they finished the building, they realized that it was the chief cornerstone, the head of the corner. That's the literal meaning for Psalm 118.22. It's not a prophecy. But the Messiah comes along and says this is a picture, this is a type of what Israel has done. They have rejected the chief cornerstone. So these are some passages. One more, a simple one, John 19.36. When Jesus was crucified, uh, when they prepared to break his bones, break his legs so that he would die quickly, they discovered that he was already dead, so they didn't do it. And this was done so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And this is a, a type, a, a fulfillment of the typology of the, um, of, of the Old Testament that... that um, uh, I may have gotten that verse wrong. Numbers 9.12, They shall leave none of it until morning, that is the Passover lamb, nor break one of its bones according to all the ordinances of the Passover. They shall keep it. And so the fact that they didn't break the bones of the Passover lamb is a type of the, of the that is fulfilled in Christ. None of his bones were broken. Okay, that brings us to the third category. This is literal plus application. Now, the reason this is a little different Sometimes it's hard to discern. When's it typology and when is it application? A typology is when there's a person or event or a thing that is used by the Scripture to depict a principle or teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, usually, or some doctrinal point. In application, it's not really just taking something that happened in the Old Testament and it is applying it. There's usually only one point of comparison between the Old Testament circumstance and situation and the New Testament situation. We read in Matthew 2.17, Matthew writes, Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now, the circumstance in the quote, which is in Jeremiah 31:15, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So this is the describing a historical situation. Rachel is used here. Rachel um, is the wife of Jacob, the mother of Joseph. Rachel is buried in Ramah. Here's a map. Ramah is a small village like Bethlehem located to the north of, of Jerusalem, located on this map as, as identified as Jebus. This is uh, uh, 
this is really a map from the period before Jebus was taken by David. But it gives you a, an idea of their physical location. Now, today, there's a site in Bethlehem called the Tomb of, of Rachel. But that's not the Tomb of Rachel. Rachel is actually buried in Ramah, which is north of Jerusalem. Now, the circumstance and the context of Jeremiah 31.15 is that when the Babylonians came in and defeated the Jews and destroyed the temple and destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar took a host of captives, young men, that were chained together and were taken out of uh, out of out of Israel. They were taken from Jerusalem, and the route that was taken went north through Ramah, so they marched down the road in front of the tomb of Rachel. Rachel is depicted or personified as the as the the the, the whole of the mothers of Israel. And so the writer uh, Jeremiah is saying Rachel, that is all of Israel's mothers are weeping for her children because she won't see them anymore. They're taken from her. And she refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, Matthew applies that to his situation. Now, there are several differences in this passage. First of all, Matthew is applying it to Saul's slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem. Ramah is north of Jerusalem. The mothers of Israel were weeping over the loss of their sons who weren't dead. They were being taken off into captivity. The mothers in Matthew 2 are weeping because they have lost their infant sons. So there are many differences between the two, uh, the two circumstances. But there is one area of similarity. And that one area of similarity is the grief and the weeping of the mothers over the loss of their sons. And so this is taken and applied to the situation at the time of Christ, that when the infants were killed, Rachel, the mothers in in Israel, were weeping for her children. So it's just one point that, uh, of, of commonality between the two circumstances. That's what we have in Joel 2. In Joel 2, remember what I said in the introduction? In Joel 2, uh, and the quote of Joel 2 in Acts 2, nothing that's predicted in Joel 2 happened in Acts 2. The one thing that did happen in Acts 2, speaking in tongues, is not predicted in Joel 2. The only point of commonality between the two is the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it's, that's what Peter is talking about. He's saying, see this? This is the same kind of thing that we can expect when the Holy Spirit is poured out when the new covenant is inaugurated. He's only making a point of comparison there. He's not saying this is the fulfillment of that prophecy like the first category of, of Micah 5, 2 quoted in Matthew 2. And so that's important to, to under, understand. That's what we mean by application. So it's not, so even though the text says fulfilled, don't read into it your preconceived notions of that fulfill always means, uh, means the same thing. Another example of this is in Matthew 8, 17. 
quoting from Isaiah 53, 4. Now, Isaiah 53 is predictive prophecy of the Messiah. The whole chapter is it's a messianic prediction. But Isaiah 53, 4 is ta- talking about what's happening in Matthew 8, 17. In Matthew chapter 8, we're almost there on Sunday morning. Can you believe it? Matthew 8 describes these miracles that Jesus performs. He's healing the sick. He's restoring sight to the blind. He's casting out demons. All of these things are taking place to indicate that he has signs of his Messiahship. So in Matthew 8, 17, Matthew quotes Isaiah that it might, he did these things, he did all these healings, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. But if you look at the context of Isaiah 53, 4, which reads, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The context of Isaiah 53, 4 is that's describing Jesus' substitutionary payment for our sins on the cross. It's not talking about him healing people. So there's nothing that those two passages really have in common except this one area where Jesus is healing. And that's the area that that Matthew is quoting and why Matthew quotes from it. Another example of this type of usage is Matthew 13, 14, and 15, similar to what I used uh, Isaiah 6.10 earlier. Uh, This is a quote from Isaiah, and Matthew says, And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. It's talking about Jesus is now teaching in Proverbs. Uh, I mean, excuse me, in parables. Jesus is now teaching in parables. And he's just condemned the, the Jews because they've rejected him in Matthew chapter 12. And so Jesus says, this is, or Matthew says, this is, this fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which said, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. And then there's the quote from Isaiah 6, uh, 9, and 10. Now Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 describes the nature of Isaiah's ministry, and now Matthew is just applying that to Jesus' ministry in Matthew 13, 14, and 15. Now the last one, which is the one I think is the most one of the most fun to work with, is what's called summary or summation. Summary or summation. This was called sod, S-O-D, in the uh, by the by the uh, rabbis. Matthew 2.23 we read, and, and uh, Jesus came and resided in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now notice it still uses that same fulfillment uh, terminology. Now the question that we ask is where in the world is there such a prophecy in the Old Testament? If you're looking at your Bible and you look at Matthew 2.23, and if you have a study Bible, you will look in the margin where you have your cross-references, and I'm using a Ryrie study Bible, which uh, Ryrie didn't do the cross-references. That's part of the New American Standard. This is the NASB 95 edition. And you will see Luke 1.26, Luke 2.39, John 1.45 and 46, Mark 1.24, John 18.5 and 7, and 19.19, But golly, you didn't see a single Old Testament verse listed there, did you? 
That's because there's no place in the Old Testament that says Jesus is going to be a Naz- called the Nazarene. Well, wait a minute. What Now what in the world does Matthew mean when he says this? Well, he's using this in sort of a summary fashion. By the New Testament times, as I pointed out already, Galileans were sort of despised by the elite aristocracy of Jerusalem. They, they were just, you know, a bunch of folks from down uh, in the sticks somewhere, and they didn't have any respect for them. Nazareth was in the, was just this small village. Uh, we probably have more people here on church on Sunday morning than they had living in Nazareth at the time of Jesus. It's just a small town that if you blinked, you completely missed it. And it was not considered significant. It, it, and in fact, when Jesus is first introduced to... Um, I think it's Nathaniel, in in John one, he says, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" I mean, it's it's a it's a nothing village. There's there's nothing significant about that, and so uh, it sort of became proverbial that Nazareth represented an area where where oh the people who live in Nazareth they have family trees that don't fork, you know, they're they're not real bright. They, uh, you go to Nazareth and your IQ is going to drop 50 points. That's what, how they viewed about Nazareth. So um, the prophets taught that the Messiah would be despised and rejected as an individual. In Isaiah 49, 1 through 13, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, you have various references to the fact that Jesus was despised and rejected. This is summarized in the epithet, he's a Nazarene. He's someone who's just looked down upon, somebody who's just rejected. So it summarizes many different things that are said about him in the, in the uh, Old Testament. In Isaiah 11.1, 1, there's a passage that reads, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch, and that should be Netzer, I was having trouble getting the Hebrew in there and accidentally dropped the N. It's N-E-Z-E-R. That's a Hebrew word for a branch. And a lot of people that you may hear or read will say, ah, that's where this comes from. No, it's not. It's not where this comes from. It comes from the fact that, that the nature has nothing to do with Nazarene. It, it, it's just a word that has the same consonants. But, but, a Nazarene was somebody who was uneducated, who was looked down upon, and so this is a summation. There are other examples of this in in Hebrew writings. Uh, at the time, there's a, a couple of the uh, uh, Hebrew I mean, uh, rabbinical writings that use this same kind of um, same kind of application. In the Midrash Rabbah 63:11, it says. Hence it is written as in the verse, and I will uh, no more make you a reproach of famine among the nations. However, there's no actual verse that reads like that. It's just a combination of ideas that are found in Ezekiel 36.30 and Joel 1.19. So this was a, this was a typical way of uh, sort of a midrash type of, of interpretation. So that's what we have here in Isaiah uh, 11. Another category of this is found in Luke 18:31 through 33. Jesus took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. See, it's just a summary statement. No prophet ever said 
all this or put it all together, but it's a summary. By putting together all the prophets, they indicated that he would be despised. The Gentiles would mock him, spit on him, scourge him, and kill him, all of which is a an expression of how they despised the Messiah. So that sort of concludes uh, what I wanted to say about interpretation. Now, we'll come back to this, and I'll refer as we go forward. Next time, we're going to get into an understanding of the next dispensation, which is the church age, and work our way through some of those important distinctives for the church age, and especially the spiritual life of the church age. Any questions? Anything come in? Barb, Bryce, nobody had any questions? Okay. Everybody, everybody here's got that. The test will be next week. Okay. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study through these things again, to be reminded of, of your sovereignty and uh, revealing yourself, revealing your word through the writers of Scripture, that this was not something that is just uh, a simple or just a, um, a task that is the, uh, just a narrative of events, but that woven within these narratives there are connections there are relationships. There are things that are you said that have a fuller sense that you brought out in the New Testament. And it is up to us to dig down into your word. Pray that we will not take your word lightly, but that we would understand the importance of, of digging into it and learning how to dig into it, that we might be uh, equipped fully in our understanding and use of your word in every situation that we face in life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.